If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You know, I think global Shakespeare has so many extraordinary stories to tell, um, and I think they're going to they're, they're going to become uh, more come more and more to the front of of how we think about Shakespeare, and I think that's a fantastic thing. That was Edward Wilson Lee talking about Shakespeare's global impact. Both the English cricket authorities, certainly the captain and the management, wanted to make money out of this tour, as did James Logan. But because this second tour in 1891 did not make the money they had expected, James Logan had the English cricket team arrested as they boarded their ship back to England. And that was Dean Allen discussing how cricket came to South Africa in the 19th century. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of April 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. 
it probably hasn't escaped many of you that in just a couple of days, on the 23rd of April, it will be 400 years since the death of William Shakespeare. A whole raft of TV and radio programmes, events and activities are planned to mark this anniversary, and a slew of new books have been published. Among them is Shakespeare in Swahililand, Adventures with the Ever-Living Poet, by Edward Wilson Lee, which focuses on Shakespeare's extraordinary global reach. Our book's editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Edward recently and began by asking him what inspired him to write this book. It started out um, as quite a small research project um, on a character called Edward Steer, who was the third missionary bishop uh, to Central Africa, um, who was based in Zanzibar. And he, he translated a small pamphlet um, of uh, Shakespearean stories into Swahili and printed it uh, in Zanzibar in, in, in the 1860s as one of the first printed texts uh, in, in Swahili. And this um, was an absolutely kind of thrilling discovery for me because it linked two things that are um, most dear to me, which is um, East Africa, the region in which I grew up, and, and Shakespeare, um, whose works I, uh, I teach for a living. And I, so it started out as a very kind of small project, but... Um, as I dug a little deeper, um, it, you know, its tentacles spread out, uh, and there were so many extraordinary stories about um, about people reading and translating and performing Shakespeare in East Africa. Um, that it, it clearly was a, a much, uh, you know, a much bigger project. And I think even more than that, um, you know, what what's exciting um, when you're doing historical research is when you found not just one kind of odd incident or, or two, but enough of them that they, they start to give a sense of a compulsion um, for, for lots of different people to do something um, unexplained and strange. And, and that's when you know that that you're really on to a, to a kind of fascinating and, and, um, and undiscovered uh, story. So that that was how how this project started. Shakespeare's obviously going to be huge news for the next 12 months or so, but this feels like a story that's not really been explored as much. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely true. I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously, historically, uh, this had to do with Shakespeare being a kind of totem of, of Britishness and, and therefore, um, you know, reading Shakespeare in the rest of the world tended to be kind of looked down upon uh, in some ways. But I think, you know, um, even now, uh, we give into that human compulsion uh, to search for origins. You know that, that you know we think if we know a little bit more about who Shakespeare was and um, and the context in which he wrote, that that we'll be able to unlock the secret of his plays. But I really think that you know. It, it's a slightly strange way to look at things because it's sort of like looking at, um, you know, the plans that a general drew up for a battle instead of following what actually happened afterwards. And what happened after Shakespeare wrote his plays is that they became this this global phenomenon and were read in and used and, and explored in, in ways he could never have anticipated. And what's, you know, what's important about Shakespeare is that uh, he is capable of, of um, generating uh, um, interest and, 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 and providing significance and um, and being found beautiful in in times and in places that that really go beyond his immediate historical context so I, you know I think global Shakespeare has so many extraordinary stories to tell um, and I think they're going to they're, they're going to become uh, more come more and more to the front of, of how we think about Shakespeare and I think that's a fantastic thing mm. you traveled to a fair number of countries in the course of researching this book where did you head to and what sort of stories did you find out I guess? 
Yeah, so uh, I was largely based in in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, although there were also um, sort of trips to to South Sudan uh, and to Ethiopia to pursue other bits of this story. And the story really begins um, with uh, the Victorian cartographic uh, expeditions, people like Burton and Stanley, um, and early travellers to the region who seem to have this, uh, as I've said, compulsion to take Shakespeare with him, uh, with them uh, as their only reading, um, and to protest that this is the only reading that they're taking with him and to leave kind of extraordinary diary entries about reading Shakespeare um, in in the dark continent and, and, and uh, you know, when uh, ravaged by malarial fevers and, and, and things like that. So that's where the, the the project sort of starts, and um, as Shakespeare being taken to this region as a as a totem of of Britishness. But I think where it starts to get really interesting um, is when uh, it's taken up by. Uh, taken up and transformed by those reading it um, in East Africa who, who kind of make it their own uh, and later use it against um, the colonizers to show them I suppose in some ways how far they were falling sh- short of their own of their own cultural values that's so interesting how did they do that there's a lovely story um, from the 1950s about a chap called Eliud Mathu um, who was um, on the the governance council, which provided some kind of um, platform for uh, Kenyans to speak to the to the British colonial government, and there's a wonderful um, instance, uh, for instance, you know, where he uh, he. He tells them uh, the story of a particular tax that they're going to um, impose upon the Gikuyu um, as if it were the story of of the merchant of Venice and showing them um, to be the kind of Shylock figure who is intentionally setting up a contract that they know the other person will fail to live up to so that they can persecute that person. And there's, it's this wonderful kind of holding up of a of a cultural mirror to the to the colonial regime and saying, you know, you protect test to have these uh, these great cultural values but actually you are you know you're behaving just as the villains in your own in your own stories do so i think you know there are wonderful episodes like that um but you know and, and so it starts as a as a way of of um taking something from the colonial oppression and turning it against them. But it increasingly becomes something that, you know, that they make their own. And uh, so, um, you know, the Ethiopian and Swahili translations um, are, are from the 60s and, and 70s um, are really discover new things about Shakespeare, which we're coming closer, um, I suppose, uh, in the last 20 or 30 years to to thinking um, of Shakespeare in those ways in uh, European and American academia. But the funny thing is that uh, actually many of these readings were, were there beforehand um, in, in strange and, and unexpected places. Mm. Are there particular plays that have particular resonances in certain countries or areas? Yeah, so um, The Merchant of Venice and Julius Caesar were extraordinarily popular um, throughout, the, you know, throughout this story and throughout these these regions. Um, and, you know, I think that's in part because of this, you know, the, the number of different ways that they can be read as, you know, a moral fable about the impact that uh, predatory economic practices have upon a society, about um, the exclusion of people on the basis of um, uh, race or misunderstood cultural values, um, but also in Julius Caesar about, you know, uh, thinking about 
revolution and, uh, and really more importantly than that, what comes after it, um, the kinds of betrayals um, and the temptation towards retribution um, and um, really the, the practice of, of living after you have overthrown a tyrant. Um, you know, uh, we think in some ways about Julius Caesar as, as a a play about the death of Julius Caesar, but most of the interesting stuff in the play um, happens after that. It's about um, how the you know, the aftermath tears apart the people who who um, overthrew the oppressor, and then and then have to find a way to um, to make that you know that vision of of a life after it stick. Um, so those were those were kind of central plays. There are other ones, you know, that. Um, interestingly don't feature so um uh, you might expect uh, othello as as shakespeare's um major treatment uh, of a of a black character to feature in in the um uh, the history of of shakespeare in east africa but um it, it's really not very present at all and i suppose that's because when you think about it um othello is the story of um of a single um, black man uh, in uh, a non, you know, in, in a white society, uh, whereas that's very different from uh, the experience of people um, living um, living in a situation where where the the colonial oppressor is is in the minority. Hmm. Um, are there there's some huge characters in this book? Are there any that particularly stand out for you, either as heroes or as being overlooked? I suppose elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the great hero of the story for me is someone who perhaps isn't couldn't be called overlooked. Um, you know, Julius Nyerere was the first president of, of an independent Tanzania. But the centrality of Shakespeare to his story is, I think, something that not very many people um, know about and, and, and about which not much was known before I started looking into it here. And so what's so utterly extraordinary to me is that not only was he the first person um, to translate uh, full Shakespeare plays, The Merchant of Venice and Julius Caesar, into Swahili, um, and, uh, you know, someone uh, leading um, uh, a newly independent country and hammering out a constitution um, and trying to develop this notion of African socialism, which was his idea of, of, of what a, a post-independence uh, Africa would be like. But what's utterly extraordinary was that he was doing these things at the same time. Um, and they they seem to be kind of linked projects for him in a way. Um he he was a man of extraordinary moral character and rhetorical skill, but and and you know these these plays I think helped him to think through the problems that he was facing after independence. So, the popular call for retribution against uh, the former colonists, the the danger of corruption and newly founded states, yeah, the way to find a balance between uh, the need for for kind of economic stability and growth and and the cultural values of the country. So he was thinking about these things in you know in in hammering out this constitution and in um, in translating Shakespeare and and in a way that makes him um, an extraordinary reader of Shakespeare. You know, very few, we have very few stories in which the people um, reading uh, and translating and, and writing about um, a character like Brutus have essentially lived through uh, being Brutus. Um, so it, it's an extraordinary um, it's part of the story. There are lots of other people um, who I, I, you know, think are equally, um, who I think equally deserve to be um, known better or known in a different light. So the extraordinary Shakespearean stories of of, of someone like Henry Morton Stanley, um, uh, 
the plays of uh, of the great Indian translator of of um, Shakespeare, Aga Hasha Kashmiri, um, and who's known uh, as the kind of Indian Shakespeare. The Ethiopian poet laureate Sagaya Gebremedine, who used Shakespeare as a, a as a form of political resistance to Haile Selassie. You know, the list goes on, but there there are lots of just fantastic figures in this in this story. What was the thing that surprised you the most in the course of your research? Um, in terms of kind of individual incidents, um, I suppose actually the, the greatest shock um, came in finding out that Che Guevara had spent um, a period of months locked away with his wife in a room above the Cuban embassy in Dar es Salaam uh, reading Shakespeare uh, as he recovered from uh, from leading a, a failed uh, revolution in, in the Congo. Uh, and that was one of those moments at which, you know, uh, it got to a point in the research where I where I kind of had a bet with myself that I could find anyone, you know, anyone who'd spent any time in East Africa was going to have a period which they spent uh, reading Shakespeare. Uh, so it, it started, you know, it's one of those points where it started out seeming like seeming like this bizarre project, which you know no one could believe I was I was undertaking. Um, least of all people, uh, a lot of people in East Africa, uh, but it increasingly became apparent that you know, so many people were driven to think about this, the idea of universal culture um, when uh, traveling in a place um, that was foreign to them, uh, that it was really, uh, it, as I say, a, a kind of compulsion um, and, and that it was, it was going to be an exciting story to tell. Mm. Uh, if you could somehow travel back in time and ask someone involved in this whole great story a question or perhaps witness a scene, what would you, what would you choose? Oh, uh, in terms of a scene, I'd just I'd love to have been there during uh, this extraordinary culture of um, Shakespeare performance among Indian settler communities in uh, in Mombasa in the early party part of twentieth century. It's you know it's something that I've been able to piece together fragments about, um, but uh, you know there was a time at which Mombasa was. Uh, as much of a centre of Shakespeare performance as, as London's West End. Um, and, you know, Shakespeare plays being played in Indian languages in these extraordinary kind of irreverent and innovative ways um, by, um, you know, you know to, to, to Indian um, settlers in Mombasa. I'd love to have been there for that. So I think in terms of a scene that I'd love to have, to have witnessed, um, that, that would probably come pretty close to top of the list. Uh, in terms of questions I'd love to ask people, um, I'd love to ask Edward Steer, the, um, the character, with whom this project began, why he chose um, the four Shakespeare plays he did to um, to translate into Shakespeare's into stories um, for East African schoolchildren. Um, so this was um, uh, the Taming of the Shrew. Um, the Merchant of Venice, King Lear, and Timon of Athens, um, and it's one of those um, one of those puzzles about how to connect. Um, for seemingly disparate things that I, I think I've had a pretty good stab at answering uh, in, in the book, uh, but it's always going to gnaw at me uh, that I won't be <laughs> that I won't be sure whether or not that's the right answer. You also, I think, in the book talk about performances of Shakespeare's plays. Are there any particularly unusual uh, that uh, such performances that stand out? I guess. 
Um, so again, uh, you know, there's an extraordinary story uh, among these Indian um, Shakespeare performances in in uh, Mombasa in the early part of the century, where um, uh, an, uh, an Indian playwright called Mahadi Hassan um, has adapted Twelfth Night, um, and instead of the shipwreck which opens Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, this is transformed into a uh, into a uh, a train wreck, uh, which is particularly touching, I think. Um, in this circumstance, because these Indian settlers were brought over by the British specifically to build um, the, the railway from Mombasa to um, to the Great Lakes, uh, something you know, an, an, uh, an episode which led to a lot of them um, being killed, uh, and so it was. It's profoundly touching that they've found a way to connect this play written for you know late Elizabethan Londoners um, to. To their lives uh, in Mombasa, so I think that's you know that that's a kind of transformation that stands out. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, in this anniversary year, how would you like this book to change how people view Shakespeare, his works, and I guess this whole story? Yeah. So I think um, you know anniversaries are are a good time. Anniversaries are, always struck me as, as kind of like rhymes in poetry. It, it puts two things that are um, you know different next to each other, two words or two years, and asks us to think about how they're similar and how they're different. And I, and I think, um, you know, I'd like to focus on the now as, as much as, as the past in this anniversary year. I think there are so many extraordinary um, stories from Global Shakespeare about, about Shakespeare having been transformed in other times and other places and, um, and, and himself helping to, to transform the people who are reading and performing and, 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 and translating and writing about him. So I'd, I'd like to hear more of those stories, um, you know, alongside the, the, um, the incessant need to write new Shakespeare biographies. Um, I think also, though, um, you know, as much as being a book about Shakespeare, this is a book about um, about East Africa, um, and I'd love for I'd love to encourage more people to take an interest in uh, in the cultural riches of, of this region. I think you know this is a prime tourist destination, largely for the for the natural beauty, um, but very few people um, take much interest in the extraordinary writers and thinkers that the region has produced or its its rich history. So you know, I'd I'd, I'd love to encourage more people to to think about that as well. Mm. On that note, do you think this book has any lessons for us in the 21st century? Um, I think one of its lessons is to be cautious about assuming that historical evils saw themselves as evils. I think a lot of these people who um, we'd now see as as being rather um, patronising um, or culturally paternalistic towards the people with whom they were dealing, um, thought they were, you know, very much doing the right thing. I think it's very easy to to look back at history and assume that, um, you know, the evil people were 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 malicious and and the good people were benevolent. But I think actually, uh, you know, um, a lot of the the people who ended up doing things that we we think rather um, less well of nowadays were were um, were benevolent. They wanted. They wanted good things, and they simply um, had thought through them in ways uh, that, that we don't think through them. So that might be a caution in some ways to think about our own acts of supposed benevolence and how they might be judged um, by by people looking back from the future. That was Edward Wilson Lee. Shakespeare in Swahili Land, Adventures with the Ever-Living Poet, is out now in the UK, published by William Collins. 
In the US, it's due to be published in September by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. And you can read more about Shakespeare in the April edition of BBC History magazine, which is just about to go off sale. You can still pick up a copy today in all good news agents in the UK, and it will be available after that in our many digital formats and as a back issue. Meanwhile, we're also launching a new collector's edition all about Shakespeare and his times. You can find out more about this and order your copy at buysubscriptions.com forward slash Shakespeare. That's buysubscriptions.com forward slash Shakespeare. Now, we know that it does take a little longer for the magazine to make it outside the UK. So in many countries, it will still be our March edition that's in the shops. And this month, we're offering some special bonus content for some of our overseas readers. If you pick up a copy of the magazine in Barnes & Noble in the US, you'll have a chance to read an extra article on the 10 days that forged the United States. Meanwhile, if you buy your magazine at a store in Australia, you'll get an additional piece on the great myths of convict transportation. So if that sounds of interest to you, then make sure to seek out our March edition now. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Benedict Cumberbatch, Judi Dench and Helen Mirren are among a list of actors and performers due to mark the 400th anniversary of the death of William Shakespeare on Saturday. In a live broadcast from the Royal Shakespeare Company on BBC Two, hosted by David Tennant and Catherine Tate, Shakespeare Live will celebrate the playwright's legacy and his enduring influence on performance art forms. Highlights include bard-inspired jazz and hip-hop, 
plus performances from the English National Opera and the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Shakespeare Live from the RSC airs on BBC Two on Saturday the 23rd of April at 8.30pm. In other news, a Roman villa has been unearthed by a homeowner laying electric cables in his garden in Wiltshire. Thought to be one of the largest of its kind in the country, the villa was discovered by rug designer Luke Irwin while he was working on his farmhouse so that his children could play table tennis in an old barn. Historic England said the discovery of the well-preserved villa was, quote, unparalleled in recent years. Finds, including high-status pottery, coins, brooches and hundreds of oysters, which were carried live from the coast, suggest that the villa was owned by a wealthy family. The villa is believed to have been built sometime between AD 175 and AD 220. Speaking to BBC News, Dr David Roberts of Historic England said, It's clearly not your run-of-the-mill domestic settlement. Meanwhile, a grisly account of how three victims of the Titanic were found in an abandoned lifeboat a month after the disaster has been put up for auction. The eyewitness account describes how three male corpses were discovered in the collapsible boat 200 miles from the wreck site by the passing British liner RMS Oceanic on the 13th of May 1912. The bodies are believed to be of two firemen from the engine room and first-class passenger Thompson Beatty, 37, who was still dressed in his dinner jacket. According to the eyewitness account, the badly decomposed corpses were wrapped in canvases and buried at sea after prayers were said. Along with the account, the author of which is unknown, are three black and white photographs showing the recovery process. Official records relating to the Titanic disaster show the lifeboat was never launched from the Titanic liner after it struck an iceberg and started sinking on the night of the 14th of April 1912. It was washed over the side when the Titanic sunk. The first-hand account is being sold in devices on Saturday, The Telegraph reports. Here in the UK, one of the country's great summer traditions has begun with the advent of the cricket season. It's a sport that for many people sums up the essence of Britishness and a sport that Britain exported around the globe. One of the countries that took up the game in earnest was South Africa, which continues to be one of the sport's powerhouses. Historian Dean Allen has written a book which looks at how cricket took root in South Africa during the 19th century, at a time when it was inextricably linked with thorny questions of empire. He spoke to our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. So the, the book's called Empire, War and Cricket in South Africa. Could you just first of all just say what your motivation behind writing that was? It's hard to put it all in a nutshell, really. I mean, it's Empire, War and Cricket in South Africa. And um, it was the product of a PhD that I completed in 2008. Um, but it was too good of a story, really, just to be left to sort of academic circles. So uh, we decided to turn it into this book, and it really has captured the imagination of everybody, certainly uh, certainly down in South Africa and hopefully here in the UK. It's the story of a, well, rags to riches story of a working class Scot that arrived in South Africa um, on the back of diamonds, really, in 1877. And uh, by the age of 25, he'd built his own town. He'd been responsible for pr promoting cricket in South Africa and a lot more. Um, it's a fantastic story that as I said it was like finding historical gold when I discovered this man because he really did, did have his fingers in so many pies at that time. Sure and can I, can I take you back to a bit before um, James Logan 
arrived in South Africa. How, I mean, how did how did cricket arrive in South Africa, and was it a long time before before he turned up? Well, this is this is part of my wider research. I've looked at sports sports that were taken by the British Empire around around the world. I mean, there's no coincidence that uh, cricket is played in places like India, the West Indies, obviously Australasia, and, and in South Africa. And I wanted to look at the pattern of how that happened. And my my vested interest is in South Africa. I, I did my PhD, well, most of my PhD at a place called Stellenbosch, a very renowned university down there. Um, and I'm fascinated with how, how certain sports took root down there. So cricket, yeah, actually did arrive with, with, the, with the English when they first uh, um, colonised Southern Africa, the Cape especially. The first records of a cricket game being played was in 1802. Um, so that was a long, long, long before you know my man arrived. Um, but certainly in terms of the wider politics, um, cricket arrived in the late Victorian period, the so-called golden age of cricket was in the last two decades of, of the 19th century. And you needed people like James Logan and, 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 and entrepreneurs really, and benefactors as they were called to promote the game throughout, throughout the world. And that's what he did in South Africa. So there was a rich history of, of certainly, um, of sport being played prior to this, but the significance of, of this man and this book, I trace the early international exchanges, you know, when the English cricket team arrived, which, which on a wider scale had, you know, greater significance than just cricket itself. And I mean, before Logan arrived, I mean, was cricket a game played by purely colonists or would um, the indigenous population have played with Afrikaners have played the game? No, it was it was a game um, like like all all modern sport really. We we tr- we as historians we tend to look at uh, sports from a specific uh, viewpoint. But uh, work has been done certainly recently, certainly post apartheid. Now that the archives have opened up, that shows that sports like football, rugby, cricket, um, these games of empire that were taken taken by the British around the world were played by all population groups down there. I mean, there's some there's some wonderful works by people like Andrew Eldendale, who's written the forward to the book. He's he's written a book called The African Game and uh, he you know and he details how much sort of um, black Africans were playing the game around this time so it was, certainly it was exclusive at the higher levels but uh, all population groups were playing it in South Africa as they were throughout uh, throughout later days I mean it's far too simplistic to say cricket was the game of the English and rugby was the game of the Africana I mean I've done a lot of work in that area and I think it needs it needs books like mine to unpick the the complexities of what was happening because of course sport was just a was a mirror for society I mean a lot of people had vested interests in politics and commercialism and obviously the economic benefits of promoting sport very much like today the challenge of course was finding an individual like Logan and then uh, running the running his life story through this book did, did the British regard um, the export of cricket as a, as a tool of empire as a way of projecting their power over a over the colony. I've got to be very careful here because I think um, myself and fellow historians, we've written a lot about this. But you, um, it happened. It happened um, certainly with certain purpose in South Africa. There was no uh, coincidence that cricket was taken at a time when there was political um, upheaval and there were there were problems. For example, um, you know during the Jameson raid in 1895, a uh, you know Rhodes's um, Rhodes's folly to try and uh, upseat Kruger in the north. I mean. Uh, cricket cricket uh, uh, tour arrived and latterly in 1899 on the verge of the South African war so there's there's certainly relationships here with with cricket and sport being taken purposely but this was later in the in this Victorian period um, I think we now look at it and we can see the links now whether 
sport was taken with that specific purpose at the time. It is hard to read into that. Of course, you've got to remember that the modern sport was only created in our public schools in the in the 1860s. Um, I think once the British and the, certainly the politicians realised the power of this sporting revolution, then they took or they implemented these tours around the world to um, kind of cement the empire. I mean, we can see it in India and we certainly saw it in places like the West Indies. But we've also got to remember that sport remained exclusive at that time, not only in terms of privilege or wealth, but certainly in terms of race. Okay, now, um, if we turn um, to Logan himself, he am I right in saying he was a Scotsman? Yes, he was, uh, yeah, he's a uh, working class Scot. He was born in, uh, to meagre means, in, in a little village called Reston, just north of Berwick-upon-Tweed, so just, just over the, the English-Scottish border. Um, as I said, he, he, he was born in 1857 and um, he grew up... Um, um, just a, an unremarkable life, really. He left school at 14 and worked on the local railways where, where his father also worked. Um, and uh, But part of his identity certainly was a Scotsman, but he was very much a man of empire later. So how did he end up in South Africa? Well, this is this is where the story um, takes a remarkable twist. He, um, at the age of nineteen, I think uh, he was ambitious. His ambitions outgrew the confines of you know the class confines of, of late Victorian Britain. Remember, he was working class. Um, he he. He worked on the local railways and and at that time you were encouraged if there was anything about you to get on a ship and go and make your fortune elsewhere and ironically he was actually on his way to Australia he wasn't even heading to South Africa um, but uh, something had just happened down in in um, in South Africa that was going to change the whole context of that, that part of the world. Diamonds, of course, had been discovered in the Kimberley region. So by the time that James Logan, uh, his ship, um, which had left London in February 1877, by the time it docked in uh, Simonstown, uh, just off of Cape Town, he uh, no doubt had a few conversations and people advised him he might want to try try his luck um, in Cape Town or certainly in the Cape Colony, where this incredible wealth had been discovered. He then gets signed off from the ship's master makes his way to Cape Town Station, which had just been completed. Um, and within a matter of months, he's gone from porter of the station to station master. Clearly had some kind of charisma and and, uh, and and experience and business savvy. And he never did make it to Australia, of course, because South Africa, as we know, or um, the Cape Colony, as it was at that time, uh, was going to make his fortune. And so you say he... He ended up a millionaire by the age of 25, is that right? Well, he, he certainly acquired enough wealth to build his own town. And that's the other, that's the other part of my, um, my title, of course. It's Empire War and Cricket in South Africa, Logan of Mikey's Fontaine. Yeah, so could you tell us about this place then? Yeah, Mikey's Fontaine is this incredible place uh, in the South African Karoo, this semi-desert region that um, I, would say, I would say the majority of South Africans have heard of, either visited, it's part of their folklore, it's part of South African heritage. So when I first visited myself in, in the late, 90s. Uh, I couldn't believe what I'd see, what I was seeing. It's a perfectly preserved Victorian village in the middle of nowhere. Mikey's Fontaine, if you can imagine, and now it's, it's, it literally looks like one street, but you have original the original um, facets of, of, of the British Empire. You have imported um, street lamps from London. You have this ornate ironwork from the foundries of Scotland, you know, Canadian pine. You have this incredible centrepiece, which features on the book, which is the, uh, the Hotel Milner, which is this wonderful 
late Victorian building, you know, almost like a, a, a mock castle that, that is the centerpiece because Logan turned this village into a, into a resort for the rich and rich and wealthy at that time. But uh, what, how I explain it in my book, why he ended up there, I think he wanted to have a smokescreen for his other activities. Now, if he built, if he built a village in a place where no one had created anything, of course, where water hadn't even been discovered at that time. And remember, the lifeblood was the railway that was going through the interior up to Kimberley. Um, so for Logan, he saw the opportunity. He bought land cheaply. He joined together three farms and that and it created this amazing place, which today still holds such um, fascination for South Africans. And I believe, you know, for, for, the, for the Brits that go down on holiday, if they do stumble upon this place, they want to find out more. You say um, you say it was a cover for his other activities. What do you mean mm. by other activities? What, well, what else I, is he up to? Well, let's can we be frank? I, um, I don't think he would he would have made his money through um, working on the railways so quickly. Um, I found evidence of his dealings with people like Cecil Rhodes and Sir James Sivwright. I mean, influential politicians at the time, and and the Rand Lords, of course. And you know, rather unscrupulous activity was taking place there. I mean, diamonds had been discovered. A lot of them weren't declared insider trading. These kind of things and that's why people have not written this man's story because he didn't keep detailed records so how did he get involved with cricket i mean did he play it himself to any any level well, uh, it's a lovely story of James Logan. Um, actually, well, he invites he invites the English cricket teams and the the, the cream of first class cricket to play at Mikey's Fontaine, of course. Um, why he got involved with it, um, I often explain at my talks, is the is the fact that cricket at that time was the game. It was the game of empire. Forget rugby, forget football. Um, cricket made the front and the back pages. I mean, W. G. Grace was at the height of his fame. I mean, supposedly, you know, one of the most famous Victorians. Um, and Logan recognized this he recognized the power of the game and remember he was new money he came from a working class background so to buy influence and to be regarded as a good gentleman or a good sportsman what better way than to promote this empire game what better way than to bring the english cricket team down to south africa and that's what he set out to do with his wealth so that's that's his motive behind it you ask whether he was a player yes he was quite a keen cricketer wonderful stories within the book of how the english cricket teams would visit and play at mikey's fontaine by the way, he invested in 1894 thousands of pounds into a first-class pitch, so this could happen. Um, remember, all the teams would travel through the country by rail, and Mikey's Fontaine was a stop on the railway, and that, that's the key to this story, because railway railways, as, as Rhodes famously said, was the key to the continent. continent. James Logan was a railwayman, now acquired all this wealth. So the, so the cricket teams would arrive. James Logan would often put on a wonderful party, but of, of, and a game as well that centred around a game of cricket, and they, they said that, that you should never get the host out unless he made double figures. So uh, so even against the best English bowlers, James Logan would always get double figures, it would seem. <laughs> and how, so how did the tour go? I mean, was it a success? Well, no, there was numerous tours, of course. The first the first England cricket team came down in 1888-89 into South Africa, which is relatively late. We've got to remember that... Uh, Cricket was being taken around the world um, in places like North America, Australia, um, far, you know, far earlier than than it actually arrived in in South Africa. So 1888 was relatively late. Major Wharton arrived with the first English cricket team, um, and that cre created a big 
big amount of news uh, down there, not only there, but throughout the English-speaking world. In 1891, James Logan decided to get involved in the second tour. And that's this wonderful story um, that I write about in the book, which often it gets picked up in my interviews, where James Logan sponsored the tour of, of Walter Reed um, with, the, with the aim of getting his money back with interest. So he wanted to make money out of this. Like It was a commercial enterprise. Forget the days of, of amateurism. Both the English cricket authorities, certainly the captain and the management, wanted to make money out of this tour, as did James Logan. But because this second tour in 1891 did not make the money they had expected, James Logan had the English cricket team arrested as they boarded their ship back to England. Incredible stuff. That's so purely because the, the tour didn't um, make as much money as he was anticipating. Exactly, and they had, a, they had an agreement. I've seen the letters between the two that he would he want his money back. And the, the, the English team thought they were going to slip away, and James Logan had other ideas. So he served the writ. The ship sailed late, um, and there's a wonderful... Um, a wonderful write-up in the book um, the, the Cape Argus, the local newspaper who thought this was a wonderful thing a colonial taking on the you know the establishment writes how, and James Logan sues the, sues the English cricket team for £857 damages which was quite a considerable amount in those days and the Cape Argus writes it up as um, Gentlemen of England zero, South Africa, J.D. Logan 857 not out innings declared closed. I mean that's wonderful stuff. So how would this have gone down back in England? Well there was people there was uh, th i mean I, I discussed it in the book there's there's a, a debate of course between what are these tours for do we declare openly that these men are making money out of the tour remember there's a distinction at this time between the gentlemen and the and the players the players were the professionals generally working class the hard-working bowlers who declared their earnings on tour was the gentlemen often the captain and the star batsman the aristocracy they would of course be paid but in different ways and they would not declare their earnings they would play for the love of the game. So you had this wonderful kind of smokescreen that was going on. James Logan declared himself, I'm not, uh, as, as, as the sportsman, as, as someone who is a benefactor of the game, who would not make money out of it. So he was writing in the press this. And of course, the English defended themselves as well. I mean, you can't get a, bit, uh, a better shamateur, as some of my colleagues has called this, than um, W.G. Grace, of course. I mean, he was, a, he was a, a GP, a doctor working in the West Country, and he gave up his practice because he was earning as much, you know, so much from cricket at that time. But he never declared that. And James Logan, of course, realised this, as did the English. And you have this wonderful kind of backwards and forwards in the press at that time of how, how they are all... Um, had all denigrating this wonderful name of sport, you know, um, the amateur ethos. Um, and then, and then, of course, what James Logan's main main objective, of course, was to take his own South African team back to the old country. That was really where he was going to make his name. And for that to happen, he engaged with a chap called Lord Hawke, this aristocratic Yorkshireman who was very powerful in the cor corridors of, York, of of Lords, the MCC. And in 1895, um, Logan brought his own team down. To, uh, sorry, Hawke brought his first English cricket team down in this, where this relationship was cemented. Did um, a touring team make it from South Africa uh, to England under Logan's auspices? Well, very much so. In 1894, the first ever South African team left 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 the shores to go back to the old country. And Logan, by now, was that influential. He was going to control this team. He wanted to control the management of it. 
but he fell out with his friend Cecil Rhodes over the selection of a player called Crom Hendricks. Now, Crom Hendricks was a Cape Malay player who the English had said was one of the finest bowlers they'd ever faced in the practice nets. And note that I said the practice nets. He never went. He never played first-class cricket because of the colour of his skin. Now, Logan wanted to select Hendricks. He wanted this team to be competitive. He didn't want to go back to England and, you know, be beaten. Um, so uh, Cecil Rhodes stepped in and, and, and actually... Um, took control of the tour because he didn't want a non-white player to be picked for, for the South African team. So this theme of, of race and sport goes long before um, apartheid, of course. And I think that's why it's important that these wider themes are explored in a book such as mine. Um, eventually, of course, um, Cecil Rhodes would, would speak, uh, would explain the reasons behind um, um, what he did in 1894 to a future English captain called Pelham Warner. And he actually, interestingly enough, he actually said, while speaking to Warner at Oxford University, ironically enough, given the current debate over Cecil Rhodes's legacy, um, that his hands were tied in 1894. He could not have a player of colour selected for South Africa because the English would have him throwing boomerangs during the lunch interval, which is powerful stuff. And what he's referring to is the first, uh, the first Australian team that toured um, toward England were an, actually an Aboriginal team and instead of cricket the English public had them throwing boomerangs and putting on some kind of circus and then that shows the importance of these tours Rhodes recognised the political impact that this tour had to be representative of a colonial South Africa and 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 so that that is that is part of this story which often often you know raises some eyebrows but it, as I as you can probably detect this is more than cricket what we're talking about here it's the wider empire but the tour did still go ahead then, nonetheless. In 1894, the tour went ahead. They were quite competitive. Logan, of course, got his way. And this is an amazing story. Logan got his way in 1901. In 1899, he was on the verge of taking a team he controlled back to back to the UK. But in in, in October 1899, as we're all aware, the South African War broke out. You know, gold had been discovered. Kruger and the Republics were sitting on one of the greatest mineral deposits the world had known um, and uh, James Logan threw his lot obviously in, into the empire I mean he opened up Mikey's Fontaine for the British Army so in, in November 1899 it wasn't the rich and famous staying at Mikey's Fontaine it was the British Army based there people like Ironside and Haig and later Kitchener um, but to go back to the cricket, in 1901, he agreed with his mate Lord Hawke, remember, back in the corridors of Lords, that they would arrange a first-class tour to take place. So in April 1901, while the war was still raging, Logan puts together a, a, a decent side, including his son, by the way. The only time he ever played first-class cricket was for South Africa because his dad controlled the side. And he, and he leaves Cape Town and they play 15 first-class matches in, throughout the United Kingdom while the war is taking place. Incredible. I couldn't believe that nobody had ever written about this. And Arthur Conan Doyle, no less, writes in the press as they arrive, how dare a team of cricketers arrive on our shores when they should be fighting a war back in, the old, back in their own country. And James Logan, being the wonderful media man and appreciating the written word, he, by the way, he owned his own newspaper in South Africa, so a lot of the news that came out was positive, turned the thing round and pointed out his own efforts in the war. They even wore the, the colour of the South African... Uh, war medal on their jerseys within weeks they became darlings of the british press and they went on to to compete but it, it was about building james logan's reputation of course and the 1901 tour which is the second ever south african tour to the uk um cemented that was that kind of the high water mark of his career you think that, that 
Yes, yes, I, I think so. I mean, the, the thing with Logan, he knew when to get into things. He also knew when to get out of out of things. I mean, we haven't talked about his political activity, which is incredible. Yeah, I was going to say, he was a bit of a canny political op- operator, wasn't he? From... Yeah, they, they, he was referred to as a political chameleon. I mean, he crossed the floor. There was no real strong party affiliation at, in, at that time in, in, in the colony. So um, he would basically be the party of James Logan, which in itself is, it sounds mercenary, but it's also, he also was a man of his times. He was actually referred to as, as a man of his times by a lot of the press. Um, the ideal colonial was another um, wonderful uh, tag that he had, as well as the laird of Mikey Fontaine, the Lord, which came from himself, of course. He was a very good self-publicist. But in terms of politics, he was aligned to Rhodes and the and the so-called progressives and the, the empire builders. But the war brought all that to an end. Rhodes, of course, uh, was no longer. Um, and L- R- um, Logan withdrew from politics permanently in 19, 1908. And then, of course, the 1910 Union Act and changed the whole political landscape of South Africa forever. But I, you cannot discount the kind of legacy and the impact that, that people like Logan, as unscrupulous and as entrepreneurial as they were and self-interested, had during this period. What impact on I mean, his career and on cricket more generally in South Africa did uh, the Boer War have? I imagine it was quite a, you know, quite a catastrophic impact, wasn't it? It was fundamental. I mean, the, the, the South African War, the Anglo-Boer War, as it's sometimes known, really does still affect South Africa's psyche today. And remember, it was a civil war. It wasn't It wasn't a white man's war. It wasn't between the English and the Afrikaners. It affected everybody. It, it split households. Um, you know, the concentration camps, the scorched earth policy of Kitchener. I mean, it really, really um, has, has wounds that are perhaps are not even healed to this day. For, for 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 this particular story, it did change everything. I mean, the late Victorian period, the 1890s was Logan's golden age. People like Rudyard Kipling, um, Randolph Churchill, the Sultan of Zanzibar. I mean, they all visited Mikey's Fontaine. A lot of my research comes from not just South African documentation and, and, and press. It comes from the wider British Empire. This man and his, his town were, were on everybody's lips. Now, the war brought that to an end, of course. But he was, he was canny enough to use the war for also publicity i mean as i said he he put his efforts behind the you know the british he offered he offered um his town as a remount camp i mean in by november 1899 there were 10,000 imperial troops 20,000 horses stationed there as they made their way up to the front at kimberley along the railway lines remember a lot of the a lot of the early battles were fought along the railway lines anyway um so it it, it had a fundamental uh, effect not just on this story but on the wider politics and 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 society in South Africa. Um, some historians said it was inevitable. I suppose the forces of imperialism and the doggedness of Kruger and his republics to the north. It was a real clash of cultures. Um, and of course, gold was behind all of it. Is, is the, the generalisation that the war drove Afrikaners away from cricket into the arms of rugby, is that a generalisation or is there, is there truth behind that? Well, I, I, I certainly think there is some truth behind that. I've done a lot of work in that area. In fact, before I turned my, my focus to cricket, uh, my my um, previous work has, has actually dealt with Afrikaner nationalism and rugby. I mean, we we're all aware of the Springbok symbol and what it means to, to Afrikaans people in, in South Africa. I mean, they, they, they built up this almost brand of the, of the thing. You know, I talk to my students often about 95 and that symbolic image of Mandela handing a trophy to a white Afrikaans captain, Francois Pino, and what it means but to understand that you have to go right back to this period that i'm i'm a specialist in um 
I would I would say that prior to the South African War, Eng, um, English Afrikaans, um, Indians, um, Black Africans were all playing cricket, were all playing all the sports. But what the, what the uh, what the sport did, it defined certain identities, um, which is natural. Um, so after the war, we find that more English speaking schools will concentrate on 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 cricket and and perhaps football and the Afrikaners took rugby and made it their own game and that didn't happen overnight um there's there's some work by my master's um supervisor um Fleuris van der Merwe down in South Africa that suggests that the Afrikaners, a lot of them, the rural ones, only learnt the game in the prisoner of war camps. So it was the English were responsible for spreading their sporting ethos and the, and, the, and the codes, and then they took it back to their communities. And with the rise of Afrikaner nationalism leading up, of course, up to 1948 and the and the National Party getting into power. You had this glorification of this suffering during the war. The, the Afrikaans language was promoted, the Calvinist religion. And on the back of this revolution came rugby. Remember, remember this was, if you're going to beat the English at their own game, how do you do it? Do you take them on at cricket or crown green bowls or do you take them on at that very manly masculine game rugby? And that's what they did and they embraced it. Right, finally, just returning to... to to um, Logan, what do you see as being his principal legacy in South Africa and more especially South African cricket? Well, to South Africans, there's an incredible place that sits in the semi-desert region called Mikey's Fontaine, which is part of their folklore. It really is. I mean, it's it it, it, it amazes me when I give the when I give my talks throughout the country, how many people know about this place and and the impact it has on their heritage. Um, so from that point of view, yes, but from a wider historical um, point of view, I think James Logan was one of those entrepreneurs, one of those ideal colonials that um, that that was down there at the, in the right place at the right time, and um, you know, of course acquired great wealth and acquired it through unscrupulous means, perhaps. But he certainly did leave a legacy, and that, of course, brings us to our wider debate of the legacy of the likes of Rhodes and those kind of people. I mean, I do not certainly glorify these as individuals. These were unscrupulous, hard. Um, businessmen who would do anything for, for a buck, but they also did um, influence the, perhaps the way we live today in terms of our sporting structures and those kind of things. That was Dean Allen. His book, Empire, War and Cricket in South Africa, is out now, published by Zebra Press. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the history of consumerism and Chinese philosophy. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 